How many of you guys think the Bible is weird? How many of you read ahead today? Yeah, if you read ahead, you think the Bible's weird. All right. Told you from the very beginning of this study in the books of Samuel, titling this Kingdoms, the contrast between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of men, the kingdom of Israel, and all of that transition. We have now moved away from the first king of Israel, Saul, and now we are sitting with the second and third kings of Israel, Ishbosheth of the house of Saul, and David of the house of David. Going to get some definitions into this this morning. Tonight, tomorrow, this morning's message I have titled Feasting and Fasting. And these are two terms that are total contrast to one another, right? We're going to see feasting and fasting in the text today. But really, the desire for the title to pull out is we are stepping into messy lives. If any of you walked a messy life, rubbed shoulders with others that have really messy lives, welcome to the family of God who... Our almighty God is the only one who cleans up the mess. So what we're going to do, we're going to read through all of chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. And you can sit in all of the mess, but in all of this mess, there is the great declaration of our God's grace and his love and his sacrifice and his life as we trust him. 2 Samuel 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Hinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliab, or Daniel is his name in Chronicles, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hegith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Does that sound like a messy household? Oh, my goodness. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, so Ishbosheth says to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault, literally with a sin concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers on behalf of David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, 
You shall not see my face unless you bring, you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. You see the mess yet? Now Abner communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away and he is already gone? Surely you realize, surely you know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you were doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sarah, a couple miles to the north of Hebron. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless, innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let, it, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, 
Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people went over, uh, wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. You know, only if that were true. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. All right, how are you going to preach it? (laughs) Messy, messy lives. And this is one of the reasons that I treasure and value God's word so much. Because when we sit in the ideal picture that God presents to us of here's what a holy man and a holy woman looks like. Here is righteousness. Here is justice. Here is holiness. We see these ideals and these images lifted before us. And we have the command out of the Old Testament and out of Jesus's mouth in the New Testament, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Can you attain to the image of perfection? It's impossible. That's why I value God's word so much, because when we sit in this document, we see the lives of very, very messy and wayward individuals who still love God, and God who still loves them and works in them and through them, to bring about his life and his righteousness and his justice and every single soul that looks to him in faith, Old Testament and New Testament. So as we sit in this this morning, we are sitting in this transition from Saul's death, and now that the leader, the king has died, now who's going to take control? God has given his word through Samuel that David is the anointed man of God, and the nation of Israel knows it. But at Saul's death... Only the tribe of Judah comes to David and makes a covenant with David and says, David, you are the anointed king of God. The other 11 tribes are rejecting David. They are rejecting the word of the Lord, and they are on Abner's team, who Abner is the power behind installing Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as king. So Ishbosheth ends up being this puppet king where Abner is the true power behind it. So as we are told in the very first verse where we ended last week that David's house, and again, it's not just David as an individual. It's those who are part of not just David's genetic household, but those who are looking to God in faith that God is the one that has appointed David as the ruler, as king under the authority of God for his people. That's house is the house and community that is going down the path that is leading to strength in God. 
Saul's house and all those that are still on Abner's team and Ishbosheth's team and want to see Saul's dynasty continue, they know that they are in opposition to the word of God. And they're continuing to go down this path anyways. And that path is leading them to a position of weakness. So strength and weakness, you can apply this spiritually. Um, Context is definitely with the authority and the power of the politics of the day. But then we get this snapshot of these sons that are born to David in Hebron while he's in Hebron for seven and a half years. So what do you think about David and his polygamy? Good thing or bad thing? Bad. All right. Everybody hold your place here. Turn to, turn to Deuteronomy 17. David is in direct disobedience to the word of God on purpose. He's not ignorant to this command. He is doing what he wants to do. So Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. This is out of Moses' mouth as the nation of Israel is on the east side of the Jordan as they have, after 40 years of being freed from their slavery in Egypt. God is getting ready to bring them into the promised land. Deuteronomy is rehashing everything that God has done and some new information also. Deuteronomy is quoted. It's quoted the most out of all the books of Moses in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, context of Samuel that we've sat in, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So point number one, who did God choose? He chose Saul, and then he rejected Saul because of Saul's disobedience. He has chosen David. So nation of Israel, who are they to appoint as their king? The man that God has chosen, which is David. Did God choose Ishbosheth? No, the culture is in disobedience to the word of God. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But... One, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Whole thing is military strength, strength, you know, trusting in the power of your military rather than continuing to trust in God. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. The reason, lest his heart turn away. David is in direct disobedience to God's command. David, you're the king that God has chosen. You shall not multiply wise for yourself. Why? Because it is going to cause your heart to turn away from me. Wait a minute. I thought David is the man after God's own heart. Is that true? Yes. And we see it repetitiously in his life. But we also see David make a ton of mistakes. Just like when you look at yourself in the mirror, you can see all of your mistakes, even though you love the Lord and you love his son and you love the Holy Spirit and you love the word and you want nothing more than to do right. God is right there working in you and through you, transforming you every single day, but you got to submit to the process. David's choice to multiply wives to himself has great consequences as we continue to travel through the word of God. 
Yet, David is set up as the ideal because he is to image the Messiah, Jesus, to us. But as David is imaging Jesus to us across the pages of the Old Testament, he is also imaging to us, David was just a man. David is not the eternal king of God's kingdom. God's son, Jesus, is. So, David, you're not supposed to apply, uh, multiply wives to yourself because it's going to turn your heart away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from, one, uh, from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong the days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." Watch this, just sit in God's heart when it comes to the value of his word. He's telling that when you appoint the chosen leader over your nation, that chosen leader is to humble himself and get the word of God and make his own copy. Have any of you ever tried that before? I have, it takes forever. I don't think I got out of the book of Matthew when I tried to do it, because I mean, it's, it's a big commitment. But think about what God's command is. I want the leader to be in my word every single day. I want that leader to read it. I want that leader to make his own copy so that he doesn't have to go to the priest. This is before we have this treasure so readily accessible in our hands every single day. You think of all these scrolls of Moses it's a lot of words, it's a big document, it's in possession of the priest, you the king, you go make your own copy so you have it, so that you can have it with you every single day, so that these words will be in your mind, they'll be in your heart, they'll be in your mouth as you serve me to lead my people, that I'm the one that has appointed you the rule over. That's the value that this document is to, hand, to have in our lives so that we don't turn to the right hand or to the left. David ought to have had in his mind and his heart, wait a minute, God's appointed me the king, and I know that I've heard some information in Deuteronomy about what a king is supposed to do and not do. Do you think David ought to know what his responsibility is as king? Do you think I ought to know what my responsibility is as a pastor? My responsibility is to feed you this document. That's it. It's to love the Lord, it's to love you, and it's to teach out of this document, nothing else. That's, that's my job definition. And everything else is secondary to that primary. So now we get to sit in David's life just a little bit. So when David has been anointed as the kingdom is being stripped from Samuel or from Saul, so we've already read all of this information, there's this... Uh, conflict going on between Saul and David, and in that, as David is being lifted up in the culture, Saul promises to David his daughter Merib as wife. That's the first scene. 
And in that, uh, he's hoping that David is going to die in military battle, and David doesn't die. So Saul goes back on his word and gives the eldest daughter married to another man, okay? But then the same text tells us that Saul's second daughter, Michael, the woman that we just read about, loved David. And that idea that Michael's love for David, David looked at his daughter, sorry, Saul looked at his daughter, Michael, and her love for David, and looked at his daughter as a tool to attempt to execute his rival. So he says, hey, David, I'll give you my second daughter, Michael, as wife if you go and get 100 foreskins of the Philistines. So David, the macho man that he is, he goes and gets 200, and he buys this woman that is now, she's a political commodity for her father. So ladies, sit in that kind of relationship with your father where your father is just treating you as property, and this is the life of Michael. But Michael loves David, and, her, and this, this powerful warrior man just, you know, just killed a bunch of Philistines to buy me, Right? There's a connection in that relationship and in that marriage. We watch Michael as Saul is seeking to kill David. We watch Michael uh, dishonor her father to be loyal to her husband and help David escape from the threats of Saul. Do you remember the scene? And what does she tell her dad? She lies to attempt to protect that relationship with dad so that she can save the man that she loves. And then David's on the run for a decade. Sit with Michael. What does David do as he's on the run for the uh, decade? Well, he finds a couple of hotties. And he marries Abigail, beautiful woman, wise woman, woman of God. But David added a wife in Abigail. We don't have the context for Ahinoam. She's always listed first, so the assumption is that he married Ahinoam before he married Abigail. But for whatever reason, Ahinoam has that place as wife number one. Abigail has that, pl- that place as wife number two. And when we're told in the Bible that David married these two other women, we have one sentence. Then when Saul abandoned his marriage to Michael, that Saul took his daughter and gave her to another man, this Paltiel. And then we get this snapshot of David's household with he's not only added Ahinoam and Abigail, two wives, he's added four more as he is now king in adding women to himself and to his harem in Hebron. And what we are given is a list of the first sons from each one of these relationships. You look at the mess that we see just in polygamy and in David's disobedience to God and to the word of God in his life, we are going to watch this carry through the very messy story of the Old Testament. The first son, you have Amnon. Amnon is going to rape his half-sister. And David's not going to do anything about it. The number two son, we never hear anything about Kiliab. Absalom is the full brother of the sister that is raped, so Absalom takes it on himself and kills the older brother, Amnon, which causes him to flee. And then when he comes back, Absalom is a, his mom is the daughter of a foreign king. So in all of that politics that's going on, Absalom captures the hearts of the people 
and seizes the kingdom from David, and David flees. Joab, in this story, ends up killing Absalom, and we watch David mourn the loss of his son and need to step it up as king and be ruler of the people. And then Joab kills Absalom, right? And then Adonijah, Solomon, ends up killing Adonijah after David dies. Messy? Why? Because a man made the conscious choice I know what the word of God says, and I'm going to do it my own way anyways. That's why. Now, we watch God's grace all over David's life. We are going to watch him take Bathsheba, another man's wife, commit adultery, kill the husband Uriah to cover that up. The product between David and Bathsheba and the children that they have, we're told that God loved Solomon. And God chose Solomon, a product of this messed up relationship, to be the next king of Israel. When you sit with Matthew in Jesus' genealogy, he takes Jesus' line back through Solomon and all of that mess. When you sit with Luke in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he takes it through Nathan, which is Solomon's brother. These are messy lives. This is a messy kingdom. All of this mess doesn't have to be. A lot of our mess doesn't have to be, but does God abandon us in our messes? He can leave you to your mess if you have that heart and attitude of Saul and you're only changing your life um, to get free from the consequence of a mess, but you're really not aiming your mind and your soul and all that you are to your creator. David is defined as a man after God's own heart. Because as a foundation, even in his rebellion, even when he's not doing what the word of God says, there is an aspect of him that is consistently aimed toward his God as he's doing things that the culture tells him that he has the freedom to do. Because this is what kings do. They add to themselves wives. They add to themselves horses. They add to themselves gold. And God says, don't do that because that's going to make you just like the world. Here's the parameters that I'm setting for you. Here's the lane that I want you to walk in as a king. And that lane is the word of God and the word of God alone. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, Abner. So Abner is the cousin of Saul military leader, powerful general. He is the one that holds the power over the military as general. Abner, we are told that he knows exactly what the word of God concerning David is. And Abner is another man that we have in this passage that's doing the exact same thing. I know what God's word says, but I'm going to do it my way. So he sets up Ishbosheth as a puppet king so that he can have power. And that's what the text is telling us, that Abner is the one, as Saul's house is growing in its weakness, Abner is growing in his strength over that house. And Ishbosheth doesn't like that very much. So when Ishbosheth is coming to Abner, and confronting him concerning another messed up relationship, one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah. And we're going to sit with Rizpah later on. You can go read chapter 21 as you watch another totally weird and atrocious interaction between she and David. But David ends up honoring her in that scene. 
Ishbosheth is accusing Abner of something that we don't know it, whether it's true or false. But Abner responds in very great anger. Like, how dare you challenge me? How dare you accuse me? How Abner responds makes us feel that the accusation is false, but Abner could truly be pursuing a relationship with a woman who was Saul's concubine, who again, he would only be doing that to use this woman as a political tool, because seizing a man's concubine in this culture is just like seizing the throne. And that's why Ishbosheth is either one, truly accusing, or two, he's trying to limit Abner's growing strength. So, but in this, we are told that it's, Abner is confronted with something. What he is confronted with, the words make him very angry. And because he is very angry, now he's going to do what God's word tells him to do. Does he have the right motivation? So is his obedience to the word of God to establish David as king, is that, is that commending Abner and his faith in the almighty God? No, he's only doing it because he's mad. So this is, this is one of the major droughts of this section. Abner knows what the word of God says, but there's something in his life that is bringing about anger. And we can sit in a lot of things that make us angry. Your spouse, your kids, the culture, somebody in the church, somebody can make you angry, right? Words that came out of the mouth. The word of God can make you angry. If you don't understand what's going on, why God's doing something, if you don't believe that he is holy, good, kind, compassionate, true, all the definitions that he's made himself known to us, the very word of God itself can make you angry. And that anger can drive you to God. But think about, um, like culturally, just the topic of abortion. The idea of abortion and somebody supporting abortion is, an, is a topic and a subject matter that can make you angry. And that anger can drive you to wanting to save the lives of unborn children, which is in line with being obedient to God's word but the reason, the motivating factor behind it, that emotion of anger, it's not going to bring about the righteousness of God in anybody's life that's considering abortion, is what the Word of God tells us. The motivating factor always has to be God himself. God, I don't understand why you said this. I don't understand why you've allowed this. I am angry. I am frustrated. I do want to do what you've told me to do. I don't want to turn to the right hand. I don't want to turn to the left hand. God, help me. There's a different emotion and motivating factor when God is your goal and God is your source at the same time. Abner, his goal is all about himself. The reason why he is choosing to turn to David and establish David as the chosen king of Israel is solely for personal reasons. So when Abner is turning away from Ishbosheth and he is turning to, um, hold on, I, told, uh, I want to go back to Michael really quick because I don't know how I got off topic with the wives and stuff. 
Um, when Michael is given to Paltiel as, as a wife, she's been abandoned by David. She's been used as a tool by her father. So sitting in all of her emotions, and now she has a relationship with the new husband. In this scene, as, as this husband is understanding that the woman that he has been married to is now being given back to her first husband, we're watching the emotions of this man and weeping and mourning for the loss of that relationship. My understanding is, again, that, that in the historical emotions of Michael, like she's found a new love and a new security and a new relationship with her husband that she is now being divided from. What do you think that that does between her and David? What is, what is David doing to Michael? Does he have enough women? But Michael is the connection to Saul's house. So if David has the daughter of Saul as wife, he now has political power and political reason to justify being on the throne of Israel, reinforcing his political power. So when he now is snatching Michael away from that new marriage and bringing her back to him as a political tool, do you know the story of Michael in the future and the bitterness and the anger that she has towards David? So when David is bringing in the ark of God, tremendous spiritual experience, he is worshiping God, he is dancing before God. What does Michael see in David? She sees a hypocrite. There you are, dancing before the Lord, showing your nakedness to all of the maids, showing your nakedness to all the other women that you have replaced me with. Again, there's the, David rebukes her in that, and you know, I'm gonna be even more undignified than this, and just, we'll sit in that text when we get to it. But I want you to understand, like, David is doing some serious damage to women. David is doing some serious damage to children. David is doing some serious damage to the cultural as a whole in abandoning um, his initial marriage and then in seizing her back. Just a mess. All right, that was commercial break that I didn't finish before. Now we're getting back to Abner's mess. Abner is, again, he is the one that has the authority, but he's communicating, he goes to the leaders of the other 11 tribes, and he tells them, you were, in the past, you were seeking to establish David as king over you because you knew the word of God. And ultimately, what he's, what he's conveying is, I was able through my power, my military power, I was able to force you into a position of choosing Ishbosheth, the king that I wanted in place, the king that I wanted to keep in power. But now he's coming to him and says, you were historically seeking to establish David as your king. Now, now's the time. Now do it. Again, as we remove the, the image of the man David for a minute and get to the ideal image of David as he images Jesus to us. There's, there is a time in our life where we can say, you know, we, we've been pursuing other things to be our king, to be our sovereign. There's time in our lives where we are seeking Jesus to be our sovereign and to be our king, but we have another king in our life. 
Again, it's all, when's the time to seek Jesus to be your king? It's right now. If you have been, been pursuing any other authority in your life as king, now is the time to turn back to the one you know that the creator of the heavens and the earth has appointed as king over humanity, and that is the creator himself. Now is the time to make Jesus your king. And we watch this image of David. David, in the ideal image that he's portraying to us, he never reaches into a human soul and says, you will receive me and submit to me as king. He presents himself as the anointed king, and he tells the people, you make the choice. It's the exact same heart of God. Right now, today, you have the choice, the free offer. He's standing at the door and knock. Are you going to let me be king today? Are you going to let me be king tomorrow? But we are promised there is a day coming in the future when he is going to force his kingship on all of humanity. And it'll be a forced peace. And what are we told that the human soul is going to do even in the midst of that forced peace? At the end of it, when he allows... The human heart is still going to rebel to him as king. It's astounding. Submit to Jesus as king today. So Abner's going to these elders. Now's the day. Let's do it. Abner comes to David with a contingent of 20 men making this representation. They throw a feast. All the political dealings are in place. Abner is heading out of town to go and bring the, litters, uh, the leaders so that they can sign and seal and deliver. David is king over all the nation of Israel, but who shows up? Joab. Joab is... Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, remember, the, these are the nephews of David. Asahel was killed by Abner in battle, even though Abner didn't want to do it. We sat in that whole weird scene, and Abner knew that he wasn't going to be able to face Joab. But what Joab is doing is outright murder in regards to Abner. So when Joab shows up, he hears that Abner has been there and everything that's going on. We're going to watch Joab in the future repetitiously get in David's face when he needs to get in David's face. He has that voice. He has that strength and that power in David's life. And clearly, he's a powerful military leader because David doesn't execute Joab in this moment. He allows him to continue to live his entire life. And David, on his deathbed, tells his son Solomon, kill Joab. Messy? Messy. So Joab chases, you know, sends messengers to chase Abner down, brings him back to Hebron. Major issue here in Joab knowing what the word of God says and intentionally trying to skirt around it. Hebron is a refuge city. Joab is, the role that he feels he needs to satisfy right now is that of a blood avenger. If somebody kills one of your family members, there is a representative of the family that is going to go kill the person that killed your family member. That's the blood avenger. That's the role that Joab and Abishai see themselves as. Abner killed our brother. Abner deserves to die. Not true. It was in battle. So any retribution is against the word of God. When Abner is coming back into the city of Hebron, we're told that Joab meets him at the gate and pulls him aside at the gate. 
so that he can keep Abner outside the gates so that he's not going to break the word of God by killing somebody in the refuge city as the blood avenger. See all the twisting that both Joab and Abishai are doing in their mind and in their heart? And again, we're going to watch this behavior. We're going to watch this attitude carry forward in Joab all the days that he is serving David as king. So in this moment where David finds out what's going on, what are the words that come out of David's mouth? My kingdom, my kingdom is innocent of the blood of Abner. The major application point for me, the kingdom of Jesus is innocent of all the messed up things that the followers of Jesus do. Sit in that statement. Here you have Joab. Joab being a follower of King David. Joab went and did something independent that is contrary to what David wants. So when Joab commits murder, David is separating himself from the act that Joab committed, but he's still keeping a relationship with Joab. He's conveying to the culture, I didn't order this. I didn't want this. Joab in his family is going to live and abide in the consequences of it. So you see it in the curses that David is listing out, these broad curses over Joab's household. Um, These are all found as curses in Deuteronomy that are listed out for those who willingly choose to disobey God's word. Here are the consequences that are going to come in your life. Those are the list of curses that David is listing out. But he says, as for me... In my kingdom, I'm innocent of the blood of this murder that's just been committed. When you sit with Jesus in his kingdom, does he allow a lot of bad stuff to happen in the body of Christ? How many people pick up that stone and try and hurl it up to heaven as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and say, what your kids just did, that's your fault. Do we do that? Where were you, God? You have the power to prevent this. Or if that's what followers of Jesus do, those sins within the body of Christ give the opportunity for those who are outside the body to blaspheme the name of God, right? This is what the word of God tells us. But the reality and the truth Jesus remains innocent and clean and holy. Does he walk alongside of Joab for the rest of Joab's life? Does Joab have every opportunity to turn away from sin, for confession, for repentance, for whatever needs to occur in his life? He has the next decades ahead to get those kinds of things right. As David is intentionally, on purpose, knows what the word of God says, and is doing the exact opposite anyways. Should God remove the kingdom from him just as he removed it from Saul? Some would say, yeah. Why isn't isn't God fair? Took Saul away for just offering a bad sacrifice that he shouldn't have offered, and David's just done all of this mess, and God knows what the future is, and he's going to allow David to remain as king? Why? 
God's plans and his purposes. We're going to get into chapter 7. God gives to David an irrevocable promise. And he gives it to the man to be this ultimate image of this is the king of God's kingdom that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of. And we're going to watch David give that image to us multiple times, but we're also going to see David as a human being mess up in ways that we look at him and just, it's, uh, who wants to vote for David as president? Can you, can you imagine what our media would do if we brought a man like David? There is prophecy concerning this man. God has anointed this man as the ruler of the United States of America. Go and vote for this man. Oh, by the way, he's got six wives, well, seven. He's going to add a whole bunch more when he gets into Jerusalem, when he's reigning as king over the entire... He is a mess. I'm a mess. And our God looks into our souls, and he loves us, and he treasures us. And he doesn't put up with our sin. He doesn't dance around it. He's always there poking at it, right? You know where you're off. You know what conversation that he wants to have with you right now. And we can act like David and Joab and Abner in this circumstance, in this passage, knowing what the word of God says and just doing our own thing anyways. Or we can know what the word of God says and have the right motivation from his heart, from his mind, from his truth, and do what we know honors him and treasures him. Not looking for our own righteousness that we're going to get the gold star and the, you're a good girl and you're a good boy because you're doing the word of God. It has nothing to do with that kind of relationship. God says, here I am. This is what I have done in history. In spite of human sin, this is my son in, who, in whom I have sent to dwell and tabernacle in your midst. He had authority like no other. He had love and compassion and truth and grace and mercy like no other. We have the testimony that he willingly gave his body for all of David's yuck, Joab's yuck, Abner's yuck, Michael's yuck, your yuck, my yuck. All of it was laid on him on the cross. He became our sin for us. He became, he died the death that every single human being deserves. That's, that's the exposure that God is attempting to give to us about his heart and who he is. I know you're broken. I know your life's messy. And I love you. And I want to give to you revival. Your life is dead outside of the creator who is life. And that's the whole definition of revival. Here is my mind. Here is my heart. Here is my blood. Here is my truth. Here are my words. Here's my eyes. Here's my ears. Here am all that I am. God is saying, do you want me? Yes or no? And everything that we do is in response to that. God, you hear us. Worship team, come on up. God, you hear us. You see us. You're in this place right now. You see all of our messes. 
messes that are going on in current activity. You see the, the messes of history. You know all the different ways that you have brought your truth, your precious truth, into our lives, Lord, that you've convicted us through your Holy Spirit, through your word, through others. You've made yourself known. And each one of us confesses to you, Lord, there have been times where I have known, I've known what's true, and I've chosen to pursue my own heart's desire anyways. And I sit with David's word in this passage, Lord, the, the evildoer, there's consequences for, for doing evil. And you're not mocked. You don't hide from any of that. But Lord, you always come to me with your love and with your truth to say, Blake, come on, son, let's have a conversation. Let's deal with this. Let's talk about this. Let's surrender this. Let me carve this out of your life so that you can truly be free, so that you can sing with confidence, I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am the willing servant of the creator of the heavens and the earth. Lord, in all of these words, I don't want them to be religious, I don't want them to be without heart and without passion and without meaning. And my confession to you for myself, Lord, that my words be true. Lord, with all that I am, I believe in you. I trust in you. I have confidence in this document, Lord, that it's true. You have taken me down so many experiences that there's no way that I can deny you. So Lord, here am I. Here's my heart. Here's my life. Here's my mouth. Here's all that I am. I look to you and I know that you're going to lead me down that singular path of your righteousness and your justice and your holiness and your will. Lord, and even in the midst of the consequences of the messes I've made or the messes that other people have made, Lord, you are going to be exalted. You are going to make all things right. So today we declare you as our king and we look forward with great hope, Lord, and yearning for you to come and force your rule on this stiff-necked world. But before that happens, Lord, through your love, through your truth, through your spirit, may you revive every soul that you know that'll turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.